Well, good morning again. I ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Book of Acts chapter 4, and we'll be looking verses 34 through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, verse 34 through chapter 5, verse 11. I found this morning, preaching this now for the third time, it's best if we simply jump right into the passage. Uh, this is not the easiest passage to preach, but however, it is very important. And this gives us another argument for why we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. This is our last Sunday that we'll be in Acts for this semester, if you will, the end of this year. Next Sunday, we're looking forward to having one of our missionaries come and preach to us. I'm excited about that. I encourage you to be here and hear from him and, and the work he's done. He's from South Asia, and he's part of the ones that, have, that we were able to serve this past summer. So I really want you to come and hear from him. And then after that, we come back from Thanksgiving, and I'll be in the book of Matthew as we'll look to our Christmas series. Now, we'll come back to Acts next year, and we'll start back again. But it's important that we preach verse by verse because, quite honestly, if I'm just picking passages randomly every week, this is not necessarily one I think I'm going to pick. By preaching verse by verse allows us or forces me to, to preach every verse because every word, of course, that is given to us is inspired by God and good for us. Now, the only time I did think, I was talking to some of my buddies, the only time I do think I would preach this passage is if we're beginning some sort of capital campaign, fundraising campaign, and I would simply preach a sermon titled, Give or Die, basically. <laughs> um, and that may, be, that may be when it would come into play, but, but not this morning. Uh, we're going to look at this passage to see how the Lord builds his church and continue there. So if you will, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 34, we're going to look through a little bit into chapter 5 through verse 11. It says this, the word of God says this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many who as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray together. 
Father, we ask now as we look to your word that you would teach us, mold us, and shape us according to your word. God, may we seek to be obedient. May we seek to be a people that love you and follow you. And God, may your word this morning be not just a reminder to us of the serious nature of sin, but also a reminder of the great Savior, Christ Jesus. And so, God, we pray these things now in dependence upon you as we look to your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. In order for us, I think, to understand this passage, we may need to go back to the verses before that can kind of serve as a summary or maybe a a, a beginning. Remember last week we looked at that end of chapter 4 where it kind of gives this summary statement of the church at the time, and our discussion was around the fact that The Spirit of God not only came to dwell within the people of God, especially at those moments like Peter uh, at Pentecost and, and, and Peter and John before the people at the temple and before the Sanhedrin, but the Spirit of God was dwelling with the people of God for their everyday walk with God, for their everyday walk. And if you look back to verse 33, it says, great grace was upon them all. They were united, they were generous, they were proclaiming with boldness the word of God, with power the word of God, and great grace was upon them all. This is the explanation for why the church was united, why the church was generous, why the church was bold with the powerful testimony that Jesus Christ was alive. It was God's grace that had been granted to them. It was his grace that does not run out. It was his grace that is not taxed. It was his grace that is, not, that is not waning. It is always there. It is always present. It is always enough. And so in the, in the seeking after unity, there was grace amongst them. In the desire for generosity, God's grace was there. In their proclaiming the powerful testimony of the resurrected Christ, God's grace was present. And this, in that day and age, was an incredible testimony. It says there was not a needy person among them, all because of God's grace, not a needy person among them. That was powerful in and of itself. For in Jerusalem at the time, consider this community of of people that had grown together to love one another and care for one another. So as when those who were outside the church would look in, they would see that everybody in the church was cared for. Everybody was loved. Everybody was, was working together for a purpose. Everybody had the same testimony of the resurrected Christ that had changed their life. So when they looked from the outside in, what a testimony it was that bolstered the testimony of the resurrected king. In other words, you see here in the early church, both the word, Jesus is alive and he can save you from your sins and the deeds that they loved one another and they loved their neighbor. You can see these two things going together. And and my friends, that's the ethic of the Christian life, if you will. Remember in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is standing at the judgment, the great judge is judging those who come into his kingdom. And he says, when I was, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was uh, tired, you gave me rest. I needed clothing, you gave me clothes. And those who were in the church said, when did we do these things for you? When you did them to the least of these, you've done them to me. The ethic of the Christian life is not just that we believe certain things that we must believe, and that is sure, but it's also that we live out those beliefs and they're seen out and among us. It's not just that we love God, it's also that we love our neighbor as well. No hypocrisy, lived out love for the church. That's what we're called to. That's what Jesus calls to. In fact, when we look at that judgment, it kind of gives us pause because that's the questions he's gonna ask at the end. Those are the questions he asks of his people. 
not the belief system. And why is it that he asks those questions about what they did? It's because what you do reflects what you believe. Reflects what you believe. And so here we see that this is the Christian life. This is the church, the spirit working. They were in unity together. They were generous. They had glad and generous hearts working together so that no one had a need that was not met. And they were proclaiming things with boldness and in power. I'm not a fan of the phrase, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. I think it's a silly phrase. There's no way to proclaim the gospel without words. You have to use words. God has called us to use words. Speak, proclaim, tell. All of those words are what God's called us to do with the good news of Christ. And sometimes we use that phrase, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. We use that as an excuse not to speak or not to tell. But there is some sentiment in it that is true. Quite oftentimes, the world's only knowledge of Jesus Christ is what it sees in the lives of Christians. So the question then becomes, what does it see? What does the world see when it looks at you? When it looks at you, do you they see someone who's loving, who's caring, who seeks to serve, who seeks to honor. Do they see the fruits of the Spirit that is dwelling within you, lived out before them? Is that what we, that they see? And ultimately, what we recognize then, if that's the case, if it's the case that the only knowledge the world has of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ quite often is what it sees in the lives of Christians, then by all means, it matters how you live. It matters how you live before the world. It matters how you live out your testimony in your workplace. It matters how you live and in, in, in where, you, where you have fun and where you play. It matters in the marketplace. It matters what they see of you. It matters how you live if you're called a Christian. For the Lord says, those things display what you believe. Our weakness oftentimes in reaching others with the, God, with the good news of Jesus comes because of our weakness in lives and are not lived for him every day. In lives that are not lived for him every moment. How we love each other, that's a demonstration of God's love for us. How we love our neighbor, that's a demonstration of God's love for us. Therefore, the power of the message is often hindered by the weakness of Christians living out a faithful Christian life. It matters how you live, child of God. It matters how you live. And there's enough grace. There's enough grace for you, as the scripture says. As you seek to live that way, God gives great grace. When you fail at it, he gives grace. Return from that failure. Confess it and go on, because God gives grace. When you struggle with it, he gives grace. When you're looking for it, he gives grace. When you're praying for it, he gives grace. God gives great grace to his people, so as they can live out their life before the world demonstrating what they believe as the one who is true living king reigning on the throne. God gives great grace. And that's where our passage kind of shifts to these two examples then. As we think about how the church is living it out and the great grace of God, it gives us the first example. We're introduced here to a man named Joseph, a believer from Cyprus. To the church, Joseph had lived out his life before them in such a way that they gave him a nickname, son of encouragement, Barnabas. Isn't that something? The, the apostles and the church had recognized jo, uh, Joseph's kindness. They recognized his goodness. They recognized his encouraging nature, and they gave him a nickname, Barnabas. Man, don't we all want a nickname like that, son of encouragement? And so here, Barnabas, it tells us, 
uses an example here, verse 34, where, where they sold fields. Many people sold fields and gave the money so that the advancement of the kingdom would come, trusting in the inheritance they have in the future in Christ Jesus, the resurrected Lord, not in the, not in the wealth of this world. And so he sells his field. Barnabas sold a field. It was his field, the scripture says. He owned it. And he brought the money to the apostles and he gave that money as an offering. He brought the money that he made from selling his field and he gave it as an offering. And this becomes an example of sacrificial giving and the generous hearts of the believers at the time. In fact, it tells us in verse 34 that for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds. Barnabas is just one of many who was doing this. And he becomes an example for Luke to say, look at the glad and generous hearts. Consider Barnabas. He sold a field and he gave it up. He gave it up to advance the kingdom. It tells us in here that he was a Levite. A Levite from Cyprus, born in the diaspora of Israel, if you will, not born in Jerusalem or even in Israel itself. But to consider the fact what it meant to be a Levite. The Levites were the tribe of priests. Of the 12 sons of Jacob, the, the son Levi was the one that the priest came from. And so that line of priests came, and they, these priests were set apart to lead the people through the worship and the sacrifices of Israel. That was their role. That was their responsibility. So Barnabas then is contrasted in our passage with chapter 4, where the priests of Israel, Caiaphas and the priestly family, had appeared, uh, Peter and John had appeared before them, and they arrested them and told them never to speak of Jesus again, never to say his name again. If you speak of him again, we're going to throw you in jail and we're going to kill you. That was the priestly line, the Levites in Israel at the time. So here comes Barnabas as a contrast to that. This Levite came and he sold his field, not about of any compulsion from the apostles, but because he wanted to, he sold it. But consider this as well. Whenever in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel had, in, had come into Canaan land and the land was split up amongst all the tribes, the Levites didn't get any land. They were the priests, so they were to depend upon the Lord. The Lord would take care of them. They weren't to own any land or any place. The Lord would watch over them. They had some cities that they could go to, and the Lord would watch over them, testifying that God provides all of our needs. So here's Levi. It's Levite, excuse me, Barnabas, who comes up, and he says, he says, you know what? I'm letting go of this land that's mine demonstrating that he trusted not in the land to secure him or to satisfy him. He didn't trust in the land as an inheritance for his retirement looking down the road. He let go of it knowing that God takes care of me. It was a testimony, basically. And so here Barnabas sells his land and gives it up. Barnabas later would be the one that welcomes, welcomes the apostle Paul into the church at Antioch. Paul, as you know, who was one who had persecuted the church, he had persecuted there Saul and stood with approval as, as Stephen was stoned and put to death. He had the arrest warrants in his pocket going to Damascus to arrest the Christians there. But on that road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus met him and Saul was radically changed from one who persecuted the church to one who proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' words there, we testify to that. And Paul said when he came back to Israel, there was nobody that wanted to welcome him into the church right? This is a guy who was persecuting the church. They were scared of him. There was nobody that would welcome me in but Barnabas. And Barnabas welcomed Saul into his church at Antioch. 
And there, Barnabas would be the one that would go with Saul on his first missionary journey. Barnabas becomes this one who's a son of encouragement. And as many people suggest, that first gift of giving that land and that money from the proceeds would be the gift that would help start the church planning movement itself as the church advanced outside of Jerusalem. Now, isn't that an impact we should be longing for, right? Shouldn't we look to this for ourselves? Shouldn't we long to make such an impact? And that's what Luke is getting at. Here is the example for you. Great grace has been given to you. Look at Barnabas. He's one who's known as a son of encouragement. He sells and he gives. And look what God does with his gift. Look how he cares for him. Look how he watches over him. He is just an example of this. Follow his example. And my friends, how many gifts throughout history of from glad and generous hearts of people has helped to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have taken this, this example of Barnabas and, and, and applied it to their own life to say, that's me. I don't trust in any wealth here. I don't hold fast to anything as if my security's here. It's the Lord God Almighty. My inheritance is there. I'm going to follow after him. Barnabas becomes the example of this for the church. But Luke does not leave us just with that example. Great grace was upon them all. But then it comes to another story, Ananias and Sapphira. If Barnabas was an example of the great grace that God gave to his church, then Ananias and Sapphira leads to chapter 5, verse 5. After Ananias' death, it says, great fear came upon them all. There was great grace upon them all, and great fear came upon them all. Grace and fear and all of these, both of these were existing in the church at that moment for good reason. Because the story of Ananias and Sapphira, though it's one of the most troubling stories in the New Testament, it brings a host of questions about lying, repentance, judgment, and the church. It is vitally important to understand this story, to understand life in the church itself. Let's note a few things then. Let's make sure we get the, the, the situation correct. Ananias and Sapphira operated together. As verses 1 and 2 said, they, they did this together. Ananias, a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. And in fact, they agreed upon how much they would give to the church because that's exactly what Peter says when he questions Sapphira. Did you sell it for this price? Yes, we did. Why are you lying, he would say. So Ananias and Sapphira were working together, operating together. This was their plan. They sold their property and they did not have to. We need to understand, as we talked about last week, this is not some compulsory thing that you had to do if you're going to be a part of the church. This was not something they were forcing anybody to do. In fact, when Peter asks this question here, he says uh, to, to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? While you didn't sell it, that was your property. You didn't have to sell it. Nobody forced you to sell it. Nobody was making you sell it. Same way with Barnabas, same way for the others. Nobody was making them sell this property at all. And not only that, Peter's saying when you sold it, the proceeds that came were yours. They were at your disposal. You didn't have to give any. You could have gave a little bit. You could have gave half. You could have gave uh, three-fourths. You could have given what you want to. You could have given all. That was up to you. The land was at your disposal. The proceeds were at your disposal. No one has forced you to do this, Ananias. And so they come. And what they had done then was lie. They had put that offering before the apostles' feet and claimed that that was all the money, all the while knowing they had kept back some for themselves. Don't forget what I said last week. The Lord knows what you give and he knows what you keep. 
And ultimately here, Ananias and Sapphira had lied to God. In fact, it tells us they lied to the Holy Spirit. He said he lied to God, a, a testimony of the divinity of the Holy Spirit itself, the deity of the Holy Spirit. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. You have lied to them. Ultimately, that's what you've done. You, your answer is not to me, but to God. What Ananias and Sapphira had done was an affront to the holiness of God himself. They had kept back some for part of the proceeds. This means they laid at all the apostles' feet like Barnabas did and acted like that was everything. And that was a lie. Satan, as Peter says, had filled their heart. Rather than being filled by the Spirit and following after it, Satan says, why has, I mean, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? Maybe Ananias and Sapphira were seeking approval of the church. They'd seen what had happened with Barnabas and they wanted that same recognition. They wanted that same glory, if you will. But at the same time, they didn't have the, the willingness to, to let go of all of it. Let's keep some back for ourselves. But they wanted that same glory, so they give it as if they had given it all. Either way, whatever the case may be, he was not acting as one who had been adopted into the family of God, but one whose father was the devil, as John 8, said. For Jesus, in that statement, says, you are of your father the devil. He was a liar, and you're a liar now. It's the devil who puts lies in the hearts of the people of God. The devil was the father of lies. And now Peter, in his confrontation here, is not bringing judgment. He's exposing that lie. He's pointing out that sin. And that sin is not committed against me. It's not committed against this church. That sin is ultimately committed against God himself. And that's who you have to answer to. We need to recognize that truth. Sin is rebellion against God himself. Sin is rebellion against God himself. We may think there is no harm in sin. We may try to categorize our sins. You got the small sins, the little white lies, if you will. You got the large one. I've never committed the large, but the small. We try to categorize our sins into different categories so as we can feel better about the ones we commit over against the other ones that are there. But what we need to recognize is that every single sin that has ever been committed is rebellion to God. No matter how small you think it might be or how large you think it might be, every single sin is rebellion to a holy God. And every sin against God, no matter how small or large you think it may be, bears the penalty of death. Every single one. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says. And why is that? Because rebellion, an act of rebellion to God is an affront to his holiness and he is infinitely holy. And so to, to attack his, his holiness demands a penalty to be paid in all eternity because you can never pay off that penalty to attack the holiness of God. So if you're going to pay for your sins, you're going to pay for them in eternity, the Lord says, suffering under his judgment, for the wages of sin is death, and the ultimate judge is God himself. And here, the righteous judge makes a judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. The story echoes many stories in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, tried to cover up their rebellion with fig leaves, you know, and hide from him only to be cast out of the garden and out of his presence. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 went into an offering, Levites that went into the offering to offer up sacrifice to God, and they brought what's called strange fire, unholy fire into the place. They thought that they could worship God in their own understanding, with their own uh, ideas, with their own, with their own desires. But the fire that they brought 
was unholy and it consumed them immediately. Or Achan goes to the battle of Jericho. God had fought for them in the battle of Jericho and God said, don't take a thing from Jericho. Trust in me, depend upon me. But when Achan saw the gold and silver of Jericho, he pulled some out for himself and his family and he buried it under his tent thinking, I'm not gonna trust in God to provide for me. I'm gonna take some for myself. I'm gonna make sure I'm secure in the future only to cost himself and his family their lives because of their rebellion against God. Or Uzzah, Uzzah had won back the Ark of the Covenant and he was bringing it back into Jerusalem and God told him, when you bring the Ark out, the Ark represented that holiness of God, the presence of God with his people. When you bring the Ark out, you must cover that thing. When you're walking out, it's only uncovered in the temple, in the tabernacle, if you will. But Uzzah was so proud of what he accomplished, he pulled the cover off to walk through so everybody could see it. And there, the ox began to stumble, the cart began to tip, and that, that Ark of the Covenant began to fall, and Uzzah wanted to protect the Ark from the mud, but he didn't realize his hand was dirtier than the mud when it came to the holiness of God. And he touched it, and he died immediately. Or consider Gehazi in 2 Kings. Elisha had healed Naaman from leprosy because of his, his rebellion to God, and Elijah had healed Naaman from leprosy. And Naaman tried to pay Elijah. Here, Elijah, uh, uh, let me give you some money for what you have done. And Elijah said, no, this is God who has done this work, not mine. It's not for sale. And Naaman left, and Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, said, he's got some money. I'm going to go get it. And he followed after Naaman, and he said, by the way, it is for sale. There's a couple charges you weren't aware of. Let me get some of that from you. And Naaman paid Gehazi. Gehazi came back, went back into the, the room with Elisha. And Elisha said, where have you been? I've been here the whole time. And the very leprosy that was on Naaman and removed because of his request for repentance was now placed on Gehazi for his rebellion against God. You see, my point is, here in this passage, what we get with Ananias and Sapphira is in the same way that Adam and Eve were foolish, they were foolish, thinking that they could cover themselves with fig leaves, so it is with Ananias and Sapphira, thinking they could get away with sin. They were arrogant, just like Nadab and Abihu, thinking they could write their own way and do it their way over against God's way. They were greedy, just like Achan, thinking they could keep some back for themselves, and that was the right thing to do. They were careless, just like Uzzah, with the idea that they could protect the holiness of God, or they didn't have to worry about it, and they were deceitful like Gehazi. In every way, they, they looked just like this, and God's punishment for that kind of rebellion has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. His punishment has not changed here. From back then to today, his standard is the same and his judgment remains the same. God's standard has not changed. His judgment remains the same. And in understanding that then, I want us to note a few things underlying this passage. First, we must note the serious nature of sin itself. Sin is always a serious issue. It was because of sin that Jesus Christ came to die. You see, sin had separated us from God, and there was no way for us to cross over that barrier. Sin had removed us from God's presence, just like it did Adam and Eve. It separated us from God. There's no way for us to get back for God. There's nothing in our power because of our rebellion, our sinfulness. There's nothing we could do. So God, to make a way for us to be united back with him, he had to send his own very son. And he took our sins and placed them upon his son, Jesus Christ, there on the cross. And Jesus died in that place for our sins. So don't us dare ever think that sin is some small thing, for it cost Jesus himself his life. 
We can't think that this is no big deal because look at how, how, how the answer came. Look at how the only way it was resolved. It was resolved only through the Son of God dying in our place on the cross of Jesus, the cross that Jesus bore for us. Here, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They wanted the reputation it would bring in the church. And on top of that lying, they became hypocrites. And that brings up all kinds of questions for us. Were they believers at all? Were they believers who just simply fell into sin? Did God remove them to, to save the church from damage the sin could produce? We start asking all kinds of questions about this passage. But trying to find the answers to these things is oftentimes quite futile for us. If the text would have told us, then the answers would be there, right? So the speculation here is not where we should be going. What did happen? The hypocrisy and the actions of Ananias and Sapphira betrayed such a disease that it needed to be removed quickly. It would affect the whole body. If this goes unchecked, sin would come, or come in and it would affect them all. Sin is not, and it can never be a game by which we see what we can get away with. We oftentimes ask those kind of questions. How far is too far, or where is the line? My friends, if you're asking that question, you are already in trouble. The question that we as God's people must be asking is how, in every situation, with every word, can I bear witness and testimony to the glorious nature of my God? How can I please him? How can I follow after him? How can I bear that witness to him? Not how can I get away with something? How far can I go? The question for us is, how do I glorify God with every action, with every word? And you see, that's exactly what we see here. They're trying to get away with something, and you cannot get away with sin. Sin is not a game. It is deadly, and we get away with nothing. And every sin will find you out. Consider what the author of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a, fi a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's New Testament right there, right? If you continue to sin deliberately, there's no salvation left for you. Look, look at Christ. You see him on the cross. You recognize what he did for you there. You recognize that he took your sins. He died in your place. You see the loving sacrifice that is on display in Christ Jesus. You see him for all of his glory and his majesty. And you, you turn from your sin and you trust in him. And then somehow you're going to deliberately continue in sin, knowing what Christ did to die for it. The author's saying there's no sacrifice left. You, you're, already, you're already giving up on the sacrifice that was made, the only one that can save you. There's nothing left for you, only judgment. The child of God does not deliberately continue in sin. Surely we sin. Surely we make mistakes. Surely we fall. Surely we mess up. Until glory, we will not be perfect. But the child of God responds to their sin, even in every sinful situation, with great grace by repenting of that sin, turning from that sin, confessing that sin, and Christ forgives you of that sin. Christ forgives us. We don't deliberately continue, but when we do, we call on him to forgive. But those of us who can deliberately go into sin over and over again, you've got a question, there's nothing left for you. This is serious. But not only is it serious, we see the malicious nature of sin as well. It tells us that Satan has filled Ananias' heart, just like he filled Judas' heart. 
And Judas's desire, just like Satan wanted, he wanted Jesus to be shut up, no longer. Don't say another word. Put him to death. Let's end this thing. And what Satan didn't know was that was the very plan of God so that life could come and redemption would happen. And so Satan knew defeat on the day Jesus rose again. He tried with Judas to put him to death and it didn't work. The backfired, the plan backfired. Christ Jesus is alive. And now the last thing Satan needs to happen is for his church to build up strength. But that's exactly what's happening in Acts. The church of Jesus Christ is growing. People are believing. They are following. They're united. They are generous. They are proclaiming the name of Christ boldly and powerfully, even in the face of threats. What can Satan do to stop that? Well, here's what he does. He puts something in Ananias' heart to lie to God and to lie to the church. And sin will not only destroy Ananias and Sapphira, it will destroy everyone around them. This room is full of testimony of how sin came into your life, whether it's you or others, and it has destroyed everybody around you, changing lives. Sin doesn't just look to take you out, it looks to take everything out. The growth of the church is causing Satan to tremble. Their love, their unity, their generosity, their boldness. He wanted to cripple the church then. He takes the very things that the church was doing that are demonstrations of the goodness of God and working in their heart and life, and he wants them to bring questions. Every time somebody brought a gift, he wanted people to go, I wonder if they're serious. They're just trying to get recognition. Every time somebody fought for unity, he wanted them to question, oh, they're just doing that so they look good like Barnabas. Every time somebody was trying to, to do something for the glory of God, he wanted questions to come in. So even the good things would bring questions within the church. And in this way, Satan's desire was to destroy it. Turn good things even into questions. I want you guys to know, spiritual warfare is not a metaphor. Spiritual warfare is not a metaphor. The Christian life is not like war. It is war. In fact, Jesus says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's not a joke. That's not metaphorical. That's what his desire is. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to kill you with sin, and he wants to destroy the church in every way he possibly can. This is not like warfare. This is war. And that's why we put on our full armor, and that's why we trust in the Lord. And the greatest defense we have against Satan and his wiles is for us to depend solely upon the grace of God to ask for forgiveness of our sins and seek to live our life out in obedience to him. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. No one gets away with sin. In fact, Hebrews tells us that every single sin will receive a punishment, especially sin within the church. This is a lesson the church wouldn't soon forget. Somebody was on their way to give offering to the church that day, right? They're coming to give their offering, and they see a billboard. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to remember that. I'm not going to forget that. And in some ways, that's exactly what Luke is doing right here. He's telling this story so we, as the church of Jesus Christ, will not forget. will not forget the malicious nature and the serious nature of sin. We also won't forget the holiness of God either. The holiness of God is not just an Old Testament doctrine, as I've said. God's presence is vital for his church. The church does not exist without the presence of God. We talked about that last week. We cannot survive without it. It doesn't exist without it. We cannot survive without it. And this serves as a sign for us 
of God's not only presence with us, but what his presence brings. His presence brings a sense of holiness as well. In other words, the God we serve is not Santa Claus. He's not a genie in a bottle that you, that you rub and you ask for something, right? The God we serve is not the man upstairs that we want to refer to. The God we serve is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the holy creator of the universe. He's the one who sustains us, holds us, and provides for us. He's the one who gives us all things. There's not nothing we have that we have not been given from him. This is the God we serve. And he says, here's how you are to live in my presence with holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. It's not just an Old Testament phrase. It comes directly from Peter as well. Be holy, for I am holy, the Lord says. He's not just a homeboy that we look to in times of need. He is the holy creator of all things. And following him is not a game that we play. It is life and it is death. And if you have sin in your life then, if there is sin that's in your heart even now, repent of it quickly. It's not a game. Because God is holy and no sin goes unpunished. Either your sins will be punished on, by Jesus Christ on the cross and what he did for us there, or they'll be Punished for you for all eternity. Not one is one you'll get away with. A holy God does not sweep sin under his rug. He can't. Everyone will be dealt with. And in that way then we come with not just the holiness of God, but the fear of God in our understanding. God is to be loved by all means, but he's also to be respected. We come before him with humility. We come before him with understanding of who he is. We come before him recognizing that the only reason we are here is because he died. He sent his son to die for us and to redeem us and make us his. So we come to him fully dependent, fully dependent, knowing that it's not God that needs us. We need him. We're desperate for him. God is to be loved, but he's also to be respected. God is our father, and we see we are his children, but that means we seek to be obedient to him in every way, so we receive his blessings in life, understanding that he is our father that, that watches over and cares ours. That doesn't lead us to, to come and to take advantage of his grace, as Paul would say, because grace abounds doesn't mean sin can abound, because God is gracious to us to forgive us of our sins, that doesn't mean we sin more and sin more and sin more. That means he's freed us from those things and he's called us to live obedient unto him. Unto him. This is God's goodness to us. So we come to him with respect, with fear, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no greater foolishness than to suppose upon God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Does this fear then, man, cause people to turn away. Josh, you're preaching too hard about sin. Maybe somebody won't come back. What I'm telling you is this. All of us are sinners and fall short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. And the only way your sins can be dealt with or have been dealt with rightly before God is through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He bore them. He took away the sting of death. He took away the power of it. 
There on the cross, he answered everything that needed to be answered in light of your sin. He took them away so that we, we can be forgiven of our sins. And that's the only way. And the church is the church of Jesus Christ. He is the head and we're only in this body because he has forgiven us. He has died for us. He has redeemed us. And for all eternity, we'll see him on the throne as the lamb who was slain for his people. And that's what I'm telling you. The only way your sins can truly be dealt with is through Jesus Christ. And the only way you can have life is by trusting in him. Why would you continue in things that he's already forgiven you of? Why would you keep going in those things, being slave to sin when he frees you from the bondage of it? And sin not only hurts you, but it hurts those around you. As one author has said, you either kill sin or sin's killing you. In Romans 8, Paul says, the spirit of God dwells within us so that we can put to death sin in our life. That's what we do. We desire to live for God in light of his goodness, in light of his grace, in light of his mercy, but we do this with a great fear of understanding that we cannot sin and get away with it. We cannot continue in disobedience and get away with it. We trust in him. Sin is serious, so trust in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good to us. God, I pray that no one here is still in their sins. But Father, as your word says, repent and believe and you will find life. Thank you, God, for a day. A day that sin will be no more. Thank you, Father, for heaven itself where you will wipe away every tear. And sin will be no more. And until that day, God, prepare us, each and every one of us by bringing us to repentance of our sins and turning to you and trusting in you for life. Help our church to take these things serious so that our testimony remains secure, that we love you and we love our neighbors. And help every individual in this place to know the serious nature of sin and to turn to Christ Jesus today. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.